It's that time for us to take our Bibles and to spend some time studying the Word of God this morning in our worship service as a way to worship our great God in spirit and in truth. So I'm excited to do that with you this morning. Um, I want to say technically today is Christmas Sunday. Uh, Our ecclesiastical tradition in this country dictates that the Sunday before the particular holiday is to be uh, celebrated uh, as the official Sunday of that holiday. Uh, But as the calendar works out this year, Christmas Day is not until next Saturday, and chances are most people will be deeper into their Christmas cheer than they will be now. So I've decided well to play it safe and bring you a message on the Incarnation today and next Lord's Day. And I suppose we can never hear enough of the multifaceted nature of the Incarnation. Now, as always, my efforts in any holiday Sunday is to focus our attention on the biblical significance of the holiday and be as practical as I can. So my hope is to cultivate in you this morning an even greater appreciation for the Incarnation that that you have already by taking time this morning to see it from where we are right now, in this time in history, in the history of our nation. The doctrine of the Incarnation is incredibly practical, obviously, but we find it to be more so, and the more comforting, or the most comforting, rather, today, right now, where we're caught up in the sad state of affairs in the world and in the church. Let me explain our context for you a little bit uh, more specifically. As far as the world is concerned, I don't have to convince you that it is a hostile place for Christians. And I'll speak just to our own country, since this is where we all live and spend most of our time Christianity has never been attacked in America as vehemently and as comprehensively as it has been uh, in the recent months, as it has been today, presently. We thought it was a big deal when prayer was taken out of public schools and Merry Christmas was no longer politically correct. But now we witness church buildings being vandalized and even burned to the ground. And a progression of immorality that began five decades ago with the cheapening of the sanctity of life by the pro-choice movement, and then the cheapening of the sanctity of, of the home fueled by the feminist movement, and then the cheapening of the sanctity of marriage with the victory of the same-sex marriages, and most recently the cheapening of the sanctity of the image of God and man with the transgender movement. Judeo-Christian principles are completely foreign and offensive to younger generations, as is our Christian heritage. They want to forget all about that. The powers that be in our nation, along with quite possibly half the population of our country, really have plotted against God, and they've rejected him, and they've rejected his word. Now that's just on the world scene. There is then the church, the body of Christ at large in America. And that is experiencing a season of apostasy and compromise that 
That's the, the worst, I think, that this nation has seen yet. There are many pockets of Christianity that have embraced the homosexual agenda, the feminist agenda. They have jumped on the critical race theory bandwagon, supported the Black Lives Matter movement, and believe that all white people are inherently racist whether they claim to be Christians or not. Once respected seminaries and many noted Christian authors and conference speakers, many that we've known and listened to, have become woke. It's in the midst of this pervasive, anti-God, pagan, humanistic, and quite satanic thinking that has permeated our nation and a good percentage of the Christian population that those many other devoted Christians who mean business for Christ might be tempted to wonder, how long is this going to continue? Have you wondered that? Has it crossed your mind at all? Some have even become discouraged, even wondered if God will turn things around or not. It seems that the evil one is having his way just fine. The world around us is getting more and more hostile to Christianity, and the church is, is floundering, and we wonder, will God ever intervene? We see his local churches struggling. Will they ever prosper again? Will God see his churches prosper again? Or will he let them go underground and endure more persecution? When will he act, some say, or ask? How long must we endure this awful context? Those are real questions, and there are a lot of Christians who have been asking them. Again, maybe you have. The Incarnation settles all of that for us. This is the hope that I want to bring to you today. God did act. He did intervene. He, he is very willing. In fact, his will is to set things straight, and he will do it. And this is why I said a moment ago that the doctrine of the Incarnation impacts us more now than it ever has in the past. The worse, our, the, 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 the worse that our surroundings uh, can become, and the more hostile they become to Christianity, the more prominent the incarnation should become in our lives because it signifies God's will for something better and his guarantee that it will happen. I want to show you something that's quite amazing. It was out of conditions similar to those that we are facing right now in our country that, that God first gave this same guarantee to his people in the Old Testament, guarantee that he would set things right, save his people, overthrow wickedness, and set up his kingdom. It occurs in several places in the Old Testament, and each of the contexts in which it occurs where God's promises of the coming Messiah in the flesh, they portray Israel in dire straits, distressing situations, hopeless contexts. And the promise of messianic rule, a better country, God's kingdom, 
become then their driving force to stay the course no matter how awful it got. Now maybe that all that does, doesn't really flood your brain every 25th of December when you think of the baby Jesus. But I want to assure you, assure you that is exactly what the Old Testament believers thought. And they looked forward to the Incarnation. They look forward to the coming of Messiah. The time of Jesus' birth, the archangel Gabriel and other angels and Simeon and the prophetess Anna all attest this great truth, this covenantal guarantee of Messiah and his eternal rule. And they delivered the same message to people like Joseph and Mary, Zechariah and, um, and Elizabeth and the shepherds tending their sheep that that very night during the Roman oppression, when contexts were terrible, when life was pretty bad, when they were captives, they were slaves to the Roman Empire, when Jews were wondering how long God would take to intervene. Will he ever answer? Had he forgotten them? So I want to talk about the great hope of salvation to the fullest that the Lord brought with him when he came from heaven and proved it to be a done deal when he took on human flesh. And I want to do that this morning from a small section in Psalm 89. So take your Bibles, if you will, and turn there to Psalm 89, a wonderful psalm, and we're going to spend some time in it this morning. Old Testament scholar and commentator Alan Ross lists in his commentary on Psalm 89 lists it as a prayer for the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. That's his title. Psalm 89 is a prayer for the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Ethan, the Ezraite, composed it out of a great concern for the well-being of God's people. This is the context. There had been a disruption in the monarchy at this very time, the time that Ethan wrote this. The king had been defeated and humiliated by his enemies. The disruption lasted quite a while. Now, we don't know for sure which particular Old Testament context the psalmist had in mind that he's talking about here. There are a few possibilities. He could be referring to the invasion of, the, of Assyria at the end of the northern kingdom, or he could be talking about the death of God, godly king Josiah, or maybe the exile of Jehoiachin. And even the early post-exilic period where the morale was low and little hope of restoration, that could be a possibility as well. What makes, what makes finding a historical context for the psalm um, difficult is that there were plenty of times all throughout Israel's history during their monarchies when Israel went apostate. There was also a rash of wicked kings during the monarchies in both the northern and the southern kingdom. And a few times, the true remnant of God whittled down to a accountable number and was often surrounded by disloyal countrymen, in addition to the strong pagan influences that were exerted on the nation time and time again. And many Israelite kings lost to their enemy nations. So it's very difficult to to really pinpoint a historically accurate context for the psalm. We really don't know for sure. But here's what we do know for sure. This is 
the important thing. Regardless of the historical context, we know for sure, as Ross says at this point in his commentary, that, quote, the psalm has to refer to a time that the Davidic monarchy was disrupted so severely that the psalmist lamented the king's being rejected by God and the apparent annulment of his covenant with them, end quote. Psalm 89 describes a real-life context in which the very king himself actually wonders if the Lord had become so angry with the nation that he had spurned them all. Let me show you, in beginning at verse 38, we're in Psalm 89, verse 38, the psalmist speaking really the words of the king, but you have cast off and rejected. You have been full of wrath against your anointed. See that? Strong words. The king is God's anointed here, and he goes so far in verses 39 to 40 to think, uh, to think the unthinkable. You have spurned the covenant of your servant. You've profaned his crown to the dust. You've broken down all his walls. You've brought his strongholds to ruin. If, we were, if it were ever true that God could break his covenant with David's royal seed, well, then the king is doomed, for sure. Why would a Davidic king ever be tempted to think that God may possibly have forsaken him? Well, because of what he was enduring at the time. Verses 41 to 45 give a description of the king's situation. It says, all who pass along the way plundered him. He's become a reproach to his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his adversaries. You've made all his enemies rejoice. You also turned back the edge of his sword, and you've not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You've shortened the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. Well, maybe it's not so surprising that the king should be tempted to think that God has annulled his covenant. His covenant with David's royal seed. What a terrible turn of events for this Davidic king. He, he's lost all his influence. So he begins to plead with God at this very point to remember the covenant that God made with his father David long ago and, and to help him before it's too late. He, he asks, starting in verse 6, How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself from me? Forever? Will your wrath burn like fire? Well, there's no doubt that the king sees no end in sight in this great, terrible affliction of, of wickedness. And it's in the relentless anguish that he feels his mortality. He cries out to God in verses 47 and 48, Remember what my span of life is. For what vanity you have created all the sons of men. What man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? In other words, the life of mortal human beings is brief compared to eternity and without purpose and with without purpose outside of a covenant relationship with God, the king is powerless to save himself from death. In verse 49, he asks the Lord, "Where are your former loving kindnesses, O Lord, which you swore to David in your faithfulness?" Is it true he wonders that God's loyal love 
that he showed to David time and time again and to, the, to his seed down through the centuries is now a thing of the past? Can he expect God to be true to his track record and continue to display his loyal love to him as a seed of David? Now, as bleak as this lament is, and I think you've seen it's, it's pretty bleak, this is, this is the distress. I want to assure you that the psalmist who speaks the king's words in the psalm is neither bitter nor hopeless. Now, we're, we're in the last section of the psalm, but there are two that precede this. It's often the case that the lament portion of the psalm exaggerates the feelings of the saints during their trial. It does that in order that we, the readers, might feel as much as possible what the king is enduring. We might relate to, in some possible way, feel the pain, feel the alienation and the persecution, the loneliness. There is a common denominator in all of those things, and I think we feel them. And when we read this, we, we, can, we can relate to some degree. But the psalmist wants to show us just how desperate any believer can become if he or she forgets, in the thick of all of this, that God always remains faithful to his covenant people. If you forget that, then the pain and the turmoil and the distress and the depression will overtake you. The psalmist did not forget And he points to the covenant that God made with King David himself. Now, we don't have time here to provide an an exposition of the entire psalm. I simply want to point out that the psalmist devotes nearly twice as much space in this psalm to the covenant that God made with David and, and the specifics of this covenant and God's attributes of which his covenant promise rests. It all begins in verse 3, and it stretches clear to verse 37. What this means is that the highlighted faithfulness, covenant loyalty, and the promises, the attributes of God become the psalmist reasons that God should answer his prayer and intervene. The central one, the central promise, of course, and the central reason being that God promised David's, David, his seed, would someday reign on his throne forever. Now, putting these parts together, it becomes obvious that the way that the psalmist handles this terrible and unsettling ordeal in his life is to rehearse God's covenant promise of the Messianic king and rejoice in that. Do you see that? He declares right in the first two verses that he will sing praise to the Lord. That's how he begins this lament psalm. I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. To all generations I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. I have said loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. What a way to begin a lament psalm. Now, what we have here is what Old Testament scholars call the vow of praise. Some of you have heard me talk about this before. It's actually one of the most crucial parts of the lament psalm. It's the psalmist's promise that as soon as God delivers him from his distress, 
he will go right to the temple and praise in the assembly. He will make a matter of priority to proclaim to the congregation God's merciful and mercy and faithfulness to him. Now, when you read this and compare it to the language of separation that we just examined in verses 41 to 49, the difference is so unbelievably stark, right? You can see the contrast. How can the psalmist possibly think about rejoicing at a time like this when the condition of God's saints is in such shambles and God's enemies from without and from within seem to be prevailing? And the answer is in the nature of the vow of praise. While they usually come at the end of the lament psalm, the psalmist opens this particular psalm with the vow, and wherever they occur, they have to do with the psalmist's plan to praise God, as I said. He is convinced, even in the thick of this terrible and awful context, he is still convinced that God will be true to his covenant promise and will deliver him. No doubt about it. There's no doubt in his mind. So right in the midst of his distress, remember, God hasn't delivered him yet, he starts to rehearse what he's going to say to the congregation. So while most people would be complaining, crying, becoming depressed, the psalmist spends his time during the trial rehearsing his praise to God. And please notice one other thing. His confidence that God will keep his promise rests on nothing else but God's character and attributes, which he spends quite a bit of time in the middle of this psalm enumerating. Now, Psalm 89 contrasts what's taken place in the king's life and the fate of Israel with the character and promises of God. That's what it does. And here is where he introduces God's greatest promise of all, the promise of Messiah and his kingdom. Verses 3 and 4 capture the essence of what we call the Davidic covenant. He recounts now God's very words to David. I, made, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. Let's remind ourselves of this covenant before we go any further. We've spent quite a bit of time talking about covenants. Uh, not too long ago, if you remember, in our study of the book of Hebrews, God's covenant with David and his royal posterity points to Christ. God began to fulfill this first in Solomon and then through the Davidic dynasty that reigned over Judah. In 2 Chronicles 2, uh, 21, verse 7, it says, yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant which he had made with David and because he had promised to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. Ultimately, Christ, David's seed, would sit on David's throne and rule. God promises that the Davidic kingdom will last forever. Listen to 2 Samuel 7.16. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, the angel Gabriel would confirm to Mary in private later that the seed to which the covenant refers is her son, Jesus. 
Luke chapter 1, verses 31 to 33, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and give birth to a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. What Gabriel announced in private, Peter the Apostle preaches publicly to the Jewish audience in Acts chapter 2, verses 29 to 31. Brothers, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So because he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. So, the psalmist begins the first section with an enthusiastic resolution to sing praise to the Lord because of the Lord's covenantal love and faithfulness. More than this, he will make known to all generations this great loyal love of God. And then he cites, as his specific example of God's greatest act of loyalty, again, the covenant that he made with David regarding Messiah. Now, beloved, the incarnation was the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise God made to David, the beginning. When the Son of God condescended and took on flesh, God guaranteed Christ's future rule that his kingdom would have no end and he would judge the living and the dead and receive and reward those who belong to him. All that, as well as the earthly ministry and cross work of Christ as well, is bound up in the incarnation. You know, it's like a seed, like an oak seed. You look at an oak seed and you see a seed, but in it is bound up the mighty oak that eventually will sprout and grow and mature and drop little seeds. We tend to lose sight of what's bound up in the incarnation because of where we are in God's eschatological plan. Listen very carefully. We need to learn to see Jesus' messianic kingdom from the crash. Where, when you do that, you begin to see why the incarnation is such a powerful doctrine for us, and especially now when the evil one's agenda seems to prevail in the world, in our country, and in many parts of the church. See in the incarnation God's end game. Is this not the way that the Bible speaks about infants who play a significant role in God's plan? I think it is. When the Lord told Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, that he was going to have a son, the Lord said this, You will give him the name John. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God, a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and to the, disobe the disobedient, to the attitude of the righteous, 
so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. John the Baptist was as good as this at the very moment of conception. And that's, and that's what his parents needed to know from the very beginning. It's noteworthy that when the couple's family and friends heard the news, Luke records that fear came upon them, and all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them kept them in mind, saying, what then will this child turn out to be? You see, they had the end game in mind. They kept looking at, at the reality of an infant, of the existence of an infant, John. There were, they were thinking ahead to the mature man and his impact on society, right? We can see that. Here's what Gabriel said to Mary about Jesus. You'll bear a son, name him Jesus. He'll be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Simeon took Jesus in his arms at his circumcision and said, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And then he said to Joseph and Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. The Magi from the east who came to visit the Christ child said of him, where is he who has, been, who has been born king of the Jews? Do you see? The biblical characters in the New Testament understood all that was bound up in the Christ child and talked about it as though it were a done deal. It was the end game. When they saw the Christ child, they saw a king. They saw God's salvation. They saw a mighty judge, an eternal kingdom, a mature son of God and all his soteriological and eschatological accomplishments. And so should we. So should we today. I might add with greater enthusiasm should we see it than they did in biblical times because Jesus already fulfilled part of his commission. He died, he rose, he ascended, he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Is there any reason to think that he will not return, settle human affairs, subdue his enemies, and reign with his bride? None whatsoever. And the moment, the moment you have an inkling of doubt about any of that because you've been so scared by the political and global and humanistic triumphs of wicked people, start rehearsing God's covenant promise to yourself that is bound up in his anointed one. Remember Gabriel said of the Christ child, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Handel was right to end the Messiah with these words, wasn't he? Why is it important for us to grasp the end-time element 
that is bound up in the Christ child. Because your perspective of the incarnation will affect the way you live your life. That's why. What do you mean? Well, for example, the many Christians who dwell mostly on the fact that Jesus came to save us from our sins are impacted in a certain way. They live their lives in a certain way. Now, that is certainly an important part of Messiah's work, but it's only half his ministry. And Christians who stop there stop running the race of faith. If they ever got off the starting line to begin with. You see, it's so indicative of a large percentage of, of those in the church today to think about the Christian life as being saved from hell. And that's it. Great, they say. I don't have to worry about that anymore. Phew. And then they go off on their merry way to live their lives for themselves the way they want to live them, and nothing ever changes. Because their perspective of the incarnation is faulty. It's incomplete. The other part of Messiah's work, however, is ushering us into his kingdom to bring all authority under his feet, to judge God's enemies, to bring all order to the universe once again, to put everything right. You realize that the Old Testament prophets... They dwelt on this part of the Incarnation mainly. That's correct. Yes, they, they certainly had the end game of God's salvation history in mind. Now, it's not that they ignored Messiah's redeeming work. Not at all. They prophesied it. They prefigured it in their sacrificial systems. But they saw it and his messianic rule going hand in hand. They never separated the two truths, and they never distinguished between Jesus' first coming and second coming. They emphasized his coming rule, especially in times of political and national crisis. And when we think of the incarnation, we should think of heaven. And when we think of heaven, we should think of the incarnate Christ. That's not because the two are synonymous, no. It's because heaven is not heaven without Christ. As the English Puritan Richard Sibbs put it so clearly, quote, heaven is not heaven without Christ. I say the joys of heaven are not the joys of heaven without Christ. He is the very heaven of heaven. So when we think of all that is bound up in the incarnation, especially God's end game. We live life very differently than those Christians who dwell on the fact that they've been saved from hell. We run differently. First of all, we run. There's movement in this viewpoint. We run and we run well. We strive to attain the kingdom now because it has been promised to us and confirmed by the incarnation. We reach for it with both hands. We yearn for it. We long for the day when the Lord will put all things right, don't we, and reveal the motives of all hearts and set up his eternal reign. That's bound up in the incarnation. We're not hopeless 
We're not hopeless when the church seems to be losing the spiritual battles in our country. Christ is still building his church, and the gates of hell will certainly not prevail against it. That's his promise. The church militant will be the church triumphant someday because the incarnate Christ is triumphant. Essentially, in a context such as ours, our society, our culture, where paganism and humanism and strange, vain philosophies of life regarding marriage and roles of men and women and gender and family set themselves up against the word of God, where persecution gets hotter by the year for us, where socialist ideas want to extinguish God and his truth from the scene, we will remain steadfast when we look to the restoration of the messianic kingdom and pray for it to come. God, God's promise God has promised us a throne to all generations in Christ. Forever. A forever reign. Again, Alan Ross has great insight on this aspect of Psalm 89. It's very helpful. He says this, quote, The lament, speaking of Psalm 89, The lament is more relevant than meets the eye. The promises to David remain unfulfilled, and so we today still look for the restoration of the Davidic monarchy in the coming of the king, the anointed one, who will end the humiliation of human failure. The prayer of the psalmist is the prayer of the saint today for the kingdom to come, end quote. That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? The Apostle Paul reflects this mindset quite clearly in 1 Corinthians 16.2 with his exclamation that most certainly by his time reached the status of a creed. Maranatha. Oh, it's so misunderstood today. People throw it around so glibly. What does it mean? It is a plea or a request in prayer form for Jesus to return again and judge the living and the dead and put all things right. You can also appreciate that the last word from the Apostle John in his last book of his collection, that is the last book of the New Testament, and the last book of the entire Bible, is his deepest desire for himself and the body of Christ at large, for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's in a context of war and rebellion against the Lord and against his Christ. His cry to the Alpha and Omega, Jesus, is to come quickly and put all things right. It's the message of judgment and full redemption that the Lord warns the church not to tamper with. It's a significant part of his covenant promise. And it is this very, it's the very same context that Jesus essentially reiterates God's covenant promise when he says to John, surely I am coming soon. To which the only right response from his people is a hearty, amen. Come Lord Jesus.